in. Hopefully, you've reached uh, Matthew chapter 3. Uh, again, we're, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 12. Um, can I talk a little bit about preparations with you right, right quick? This, this season for us has probably been um, a season like no other as we think about what it means to prepare for Christmas, right? Most of us, we typically have a rhythm that starts around the very end of, um, of November. We're making plans in terms of gifts for our children and our families, um, and we're, make, we're, we're making plans in terms of where we're going to be, where we're going to meet, who's cooking the Christmas dinner. All those things are, are typical and routine for us, but this year, it's very unusual. We probably don't have as much concern for where we're going to eat, and, and, and we probably don't have nearly as much concern as we, we, we normally have for the gifts that we're going to uh, um, receive. There's just a different air surrounding us as it relates to our preparing for Christmas. And, and, and in some ways, obviously, that is, that is not so good a thing because of the reality of COVID and the reality of suffering and death around us. But there is a sense in which that can possibly be an opportunity. And it is in this way. Possibly the lack of concern for all of our physical preparation could make way for concern for spiritual preparation. Possibly. The opportunity to, to or, or, or the, the void that is left behind for, from not worrying, worrying about where I'm going to eat and who I'm going to eat with and all the gifts I got to get for all the different people, possibly that void that's left behind can be filled with concern for how well am I preparing my heart for the Savior's arrival. This text is about preparation. Preparation for the arrival of the Savior of the world, the arrival of Jesus Christ. And, and in this text, there are a number of things that we want to talk about as it relates to preparation and as it, as it relates to preparing one's heart for an arrival. One thing we want to focus on this morning is the setting surrounding this preparation. The other thing is the action. And then lastly, the end. The setting, the action, and the end. You know, first I just want to stop and pause and, and let's talk about this message of preparation. What is the message of preparation in this text? In verse 1, it tells us, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a, this is a message that, that has been longed for for centuries. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this, this preparation centuries before John the Baptist, in which, uh, in which we find speaking this message now, ever showed up on the scene. Before John the Baptist was ever born, before John the Baptist was ever conceived, before John the Baptist was ever thought of, Isaiah was saying there was one who was coming along 
and he was going to come and present a message. And that message was going to be, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, when you think about John the Baptist, John the Baptist is not who we would consider to be Mr. Christmas. There's nothing very cheery about John the Baptist. There's, 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 you know, there's not a whole lot of festive when you look at John the Baptist. He does, he's, not, he's not dressed down in Santa Claus gear. John, John the Baptist is not who we would normally think about when we think about Christmas. But John the Baptist is very much at the heart of the Advent season. The, lit, the, 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 lit, the liturgical calendar brings John the Baptist back to, our, back, to, back to our foresight every single year when we talk about Advent. Because John the Baptist is helping us collectively prepare our hearts for the arrival of a king. When I say John the Baptist isn't very much what we would consider Mr. Christmas, I'm talking about the setting in which we find this preparation. In verse 4, it says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So the message is prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Remove the obstructions and obstacles. Remove the bumps but notice where this message is being professed and proclaimed in the wilderness. In the wilderness, John the Baptist is proclaiming and, and, and shouting, prepare the way. Now, nothing says Christmas like a man with the wilderness as his setting, camel's hair as his wardrobe, locusts and honey as his delicacy, and you brood of vipers as one of his Christmas carols that he's shouting out and singing. Nevertheless, here we are. This is, this is Christmas for us. John the Baptist. If we were making up this story, then we probably would have picked the proclaimer to maybe come from, um, come from the, the, uh, the big city, maybe at the, maybe at the highest of heights in the big city, declaring the arrival of a kingdom and the arrival of a king. Maybe a man in a, with a much better wardrobe than John. Maybe a man with much better taste for food than John. Maybe a man with fancy, soothing words. And yet, this is not what we get at all. What we get, and, and, and what, what, we, what maybe we are supposed to get, is John the Baptist, the wilderness, locusts and honey, camel skin, camel's hair. The wilderness has some geographical significance, but more importantly is its theological significance. The wilderness is where the Lord takes the children of Israel for discipline. When we look back in Exodus, he takes them there to mature them after delivering them from Egypt. The wilderness is the place rarely traveled. The wilderness is a place that is unappealing and, and undesirable. It is a place of isolation. It is a place of emptiness. Sound like a place that you've ever been before? 
maybe not physically, but even possibly metaphorically. In fact, maybe some of us are there right now. What about John's uniform? The camel's hair is the clothing of a poor man, but it is also it also points back to the garment of power. And let me explain why, why I say that. When you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, it reads this, verse 8. Then answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah. Did you hear that? Garment of hair, belt around the waist. Same uniform as John. John's uniform is Elijah's uniform. You see, when we look at John, we're supposed to think about Elijah. In fact, some of the final words that we read in the Old Testament are foreshadowing this, this very moment where John shows up on the scene. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. What will Elijah do upon his return, Malachi says? He says he will turn the hearts to the children, the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, he will drive home repentance. Same thing as John the Baptist, right? Malachi chapter 3, we hear this, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord Host, my messenger, John the Baptist, Elijah, the coming Elijah, the prophet, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and he will prepare the way before me. You see, the camel's hair normally is a possible sign of poverty but, and, and, and meager, humble living. But now, instead, it is a sign helping us to see that John is, in fact, the second coming of Elijah. Jesus tells us, in fact, that John was the second coming of Elijah in Matthew chapter 11. He says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violence taken by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if, you are, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this setting of preparation, power is found in poverty rather than luxury. Light is found in the darkness of the wilderness rather than the crowded space of the city. Hope is found in the measly meal of locusts and honey. 
rather than the fine delicacies of a royal home. Now, this is an unusual setting, but through the unusual setting of the Lord's messenger, the Lord is actually sending us a message. And it's this, Advent isn't always best represented in the commercialized. It isn't always best represented in the Black Friday, in the holiday hustle and bustle of our lives. It isn't always best represented under a tree with presents stacked to the ceiling. You know, sometimes Advent is best represented in the quiet moments of a socially distant home as the number of deaths in our nation from this pandemic creep up to 300,000. Sometimes Advent is best represented in the moments where we all cry out, how long, Lord, will you tarry? This is an appropriate setting for Advent. Advent is best represented sometimes in the mile-long lines of cars all over this nation as they drive through one of the many food supply centers as some people for the first time in their lives are receiving food boxes in order to survive while crying silently to themselves again, how long, Lord, will you tarry? This is an appropriate setting for Advent. It is into the darkness, the isolation, the place of discomfort and unease that the Savior is introduced to us. And most of the time, it is also in that space that we are best prepared to receive him. You know, I would love to tell you that your mind is best primed to hear from God in the midst of Black Friday or in the crowded spaces and in the hustle and bustle, but I, but I wouldn't be being honest with you. No, you are far more primed to hear from God in the moments where it seems like no other voice is within 100 miles of you. You are far more primed to hear from God in the loneliest of places, in the darkest of places, in the most uncomfortable of places. Most of us want to run past the wilderness. And we want to meet Jesus in a nice and cozy place. But the darkness, the isolation, the lack of luxury can oftentimes be just what we need to properly discern our need for him. Don't be so quick to run past the wilderness in your life. Rather allow it to remind you of your true need for a savior. Rather allow it to remind you that this place is not your home. That I shouldn't get comfortable here. Allow it to remind you of our true need for a Savior to come and one day make all of this right. That's the setting. Let's look at the action of preparation. The story of John the Baptist gives us a clear picture of the action of preparation. From the very beginning, verse 2, he says this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. John's ministry in the wilderness begins with this word, repent. Preparation, saints, is repentance. An unrepentant heart 
is an unprepared heart. If we aren't turning away from this world and turning towards Christ, then we are not preparing for his arrival. In fact, his, this message of repentance is so important that everyone who comes proclaiming the kingdom in the Gospels is always bringing this call to repentance back to the forefront. We see it first in John. John the Baptist calling men and women to prepare the way for the arrival of the Savior by repenting, calling out repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But we also hear these very words when the Savior begins his ministry. Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus teaching his disciples gospel ministry. He charges them to go and share the gospel of the Advent Savior. In Mark chapter 6, what do they go and what do they say? Verse 12, it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Preparation is repentance. You miss this and you miss Advent. Both figurative, figuratively and literally, you miss this and you miss Advent. You miss repentance and you will miss the Savior's arrival and the salvation that he brings with him. So needless to say, it is very important that we get this right. In verses 6 through 9, we receive a blueprint for repentance. Verse 6, it says, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7 says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Repentance at its fundamental root means to change one's mind, to think differently. But in Scripture, there's a little more depth in that, in that meaning, in that definition David Platt, a pastor in, in Virginia, gives us a great outline saying that repentance involves confession, that being the omission of sin, contrition, that being sorrow over sin, and conversion, that being turning from sin. Confession, contrition, conversion. In Matthew 3, the people are called from the city into the wilderness, and they come being baptized and confessing their sin, acknowledging their wrongdoing. You see, they came into the wilderness not in denial about the reality that they had crossed a holy and a just God. They came into the wilderness not, not needing to be reminded that he held, that God held up a law and a standard and that they all had violated it in some ways. One of the most difficult things we find in this current climate of American culture is a willingness to even acknowledge wrongdoing. To even say I was wrong. Whether it be our celebrities calling us to pursue our own hearts, no matter where those hearts may lead us, 
or whether it be our political leaders denying acts of wrongdoing when they are in plain sight for all of us to see, just simple acknowledgement of sin is a difficult thing for us to come by in this age. We don't like to be wrong. But preparation for the arrival of a sinless Savior requires that we first acknowledge that we are sinful. Why should we expect to be changed? Or, or why should we be expected to change when we don't even acknowledge that there is something wrong with us? We shouldn't be. However, Platt rightly acknowledges that repentance includes confession, but not only confession, contrition. And when he says contrition, he talks about Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. Remember Pharaoh, we've studied Pharaoh for a little while now. Plagues are coming back and forth through his nation. Chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. That is confession. However, that is not contrition. He felt no sorrow over his sin. But the scripture tells us that it is that the sacrifices of God in Psalms 51, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, sorrowful over our sin. The psalmist says, oh God, this you will not despise. We prepare our hearts for the Lord's arrival when we demonstrate a true brokenness over our sin. A recognition that we have offended a holy God. The scripture, tells, the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief produces repentance. Acknowledgement that we have offended a holy God, brokenness over our offense is what leads to repentance. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you see your sinfulness before a sinless God? Do you feel sorrow over your sinfulness against a sinless God? If so, brothers and sisters, you are on your way. I say on the way because we know that even acknowledging and feeling sorrow over sin is not the full picture of repentance. The rich young ruler in Matthew 19, for example, understood his need for a savior, even felt sorrow over his unwillingness to give that savior his allegiance. But that did not lead to him actually repenting. The Bible says he left the savior sorrowful for he had many possessions and much wealth. We must actually turn from sin in order to finish the process called repentance. You can see John addressing these stages of repentance, by the way, in Matthew chapter 3. He calls the people into the wilderness to confess their sins, but then he challenges the religious elite in the wilderness. He says, you brood of vipers, 
openly they may profess to live can confessing lives, but, but inwardly they are not walking in it genuinely. John takes their arrogance farther when he says, don't presume that your ethnic and national lineage will give you entry into the kingdom of God. Being born of the right ethnicity does not grant you salvation. Only embracing Jesus will grant you salvation. We actually see this even as these baptisms are taking place. One biblical scholar rightly points this out. He says that the Jews employed baptism in, ad in admitting Gentiles as proselytes. But the sting in John's practice was that it applied to the Jews as well. John wasn't calling just the Gentiles out to be baptized. He was particularly focused on the Jews and saying, you need to die as well. You see, baptism represents a death to ourselves, a death to everything in my identity that I thought was sufficient to save me. It is an acknowledgement that I can't save me. It is an acknowledgement that I need to be born again by calling the Jews to baptism. John is saying that their national and cultural identity was not sufficient for true repentance. In other words, our complexion nor our heredity is sufficient to save us. In fact, John takes it a step further and says, don't get too arrogant about being born in the right ethnic lineage because God is able to take what ever inanimate object he wants and make children for himself. That's what it means when he says that he can take the rocks and make them sons of Abraham. And what's amazing about that is, is, is in a way, that's precisely what God does, right? He takes spiritually dead and inanimate men and women from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, both inside and outside of Israel, and he makes them living members of his family. I love what, what, what one prominent scholar and author says about this scathing rebuke that John is giving the religious elite in this passage. Listen to this. He said, she says this, now do you see? A power from outside is coming, a power that is able to make a new creation out of people like us, stones like us, people who have no capacity of ourselves to save ourselves. The power that is coming is not our power, not the power of our deeds or our inner strength or our spiritual discipline or our faith or even our repentance. It is power, the, it is God's power that gives good deeds and inner strength and spiritual discipline and faith and repentance. We are able to repent and bear fruit because he is coming. And then she continues. We cannot trust any of the powers of this world to make us children of Abraham. We cannot presume to say to ourselves that we have better genes or better morals or better theology or better attitudes or better humility or better repentance. It is God 
who is making children of Abraham, making people new for his kingdom, making them out of stones, end quote. God makes us living members of his family that come forward not only acknowledging sin, but displaying sorrow over that sin. And not only displaying sorrow over that sin, but in fact with all of our might seeking to turn from that sin. What does this turning look like? John tells us in verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. That is consistent with a repentant life. That's what that means. That is the conversion piece. We prepare for his arrival not just by acknowledging our sin or even feeling sorrow over our sin. We prepare for his arrival by bearing fruit in line with repentance. What does that look like? Well, Matthew doesn't give us a full picture, but Luke does. In the same story as Luke records it, when the people begin searching for answers as to what does repentance look like, John gives them counsel. In Luke chapter 3, verse 10 and 4, through 14, the crowds asked, what then shall we do? John answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. What are we learning here? No matter what walk of life God has called you to, repentance is you living a sacrificial life in that walk of life. Repentance is living the kind of life that seeks to put neighbor ahead of yourself. No matter what walk of life you're walking. The repentant life is where Neighbor is, is where we love neighbor. We don't look to exploit or cheat our neighbors simply because we can. The repentant life, is, it means that we are seeking our neighbor's good above our own. Now, when you think about that, you really begin to see how anti-Advent the culture sometimes pushes us to be. Because it's not that there, there, there is anything wrong with buying gifts for your friends and family, but the true essence of Advent is not found in what I can hoard. It is found in what I can share. Preparation is not about collecting and storing. It's about seeking ways to live, live sacrificially. We must ask ourselves during this, during this season, how are we embodying the spirit of Advent? In what ways are we looking to give versus simply receive? This is what it looks like to prepare our hearts for his arrival. This is what it looks like to live repentant lives. So John's message of preparation is prepare 
the way, and that message has been longed for and anticipated for centuries and is finally finding its fulfillment in this arriving king. And his setting for preparation is the wilderness. The darkness of this cold and broken world is where God most often can capture our attention and do the inner work that, that leads to true and abiding repentance. And the action of preparation is, in fact, repentance. A repentance that includes not only acknowledgement of sin, but sorrow over our sin. And a wrestling away from our sin. Here's the last question. To what end? To what end is the preparation for? John gives us the reason in the end in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The end is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember last week we discussed the kingdom of heaven being the reign and the rule of God. The first arrival brought the king and his kingdom. Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life. He sacrifices himself on the cross for the salvation of the world, rises from the grave with all power in his hand. But that is only one half of the kingdom's coming. This is what the scholars call the already portion of the coming kingdom. This is only half of Advent. We still have a not yet portion in Advent, a part that we long for. And this part we look for when a young man is shot in the head at a party, like what happened this week in Vicksburg. Or this part we look for when three people are shot in the city of Vicksburg and one ends up dying, like what happened last week or the week before last. And this is the part that we look for when 15,000 people die in one week in this country from a virus that we're still arguing over how to fight it, which happened this week. Is this, part, this is the part that we look for when there are more bills than money. This is the part that we look for when there are more headaches in our relationships than laughs. This is the part that we are looking for when there are more moments of weeping than moments of relief in our suffering. This is the part that we look for and we cry out from the darkness and say, Maranatha, in other words, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is the second half of Advent, the not yet portion of Advent, the part, the longing portion of Advent. And with the second arrival of the king comes the fulfillment of that second Advent, prepare the way, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We prepare because that is coming. We prepare because we live in between the two Advents. The first arrival, which bought our salvation, and the second arrival, which will consummate it. But there's another side of this Advent that we would do well to pay attention to, a portion that many of us often neglect. It's found in verse 10 through 12. He says this, even now the ax is laid to the root 
of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's a, there's a side of Advent in which many of us will be comforted, those whose heart ha hearts have been prepared through faith and repentance. But then there's another side of Advent where there will be no comfort but rather judgment. And those are for those who, whose hearts have not been prepared who heard the cry from the wilderness but rejected it in favor of pursuing themselves and their ways. John tells them that Jesus is coming and he brings not only peace and comfort, but he brings judgment with fire. He, he describes him as one with a winnowing fork who will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into a barn while the chaff, that will be those whose hearts remain unprepared. That will be those who rejected him instead of accepting him by faith. He says that chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Why? Because judgment is coming to this world and there is only one who can rescue us from it. And that is Christ. If we reject him, then we reject our salvation. We reject our rescue. And so Advent is the arrival of a Savior who brings comfort for those who accept it. Who accepted and embraced his arrival. But Advent is to be feared for those who reject that arrival. And so as you prepare your hearts for Advent this season, let me just encourage you, number one, soak yourself in the Word of God. Soak yourself in the Word of God. Meditate over the Word of God. Start, starting today, we're going to post on our social media pages a daily Advent audio devotional read uh, read by John, Pastor John Piper. It's called Good News of Great Joy. I want to encourage you to take 10 minutes out of your day every day to just listen to that devotional and allow it to just soak in and encourage you and challenge you. And then pray for the Lord to use it in ways that will leave you transformed in this season. Also continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As we discussed earlier, repentance looks more like selflessness rather than selfishness. It models a savior who sacrificed and died for his family. And again, the culture robs us many, on many occasions of the posture that this season is supposed to produce in us. So out of the abundance of love that we have received from Christ, there should be a desire to share with others. We're going to give you an opportunity even dur uh, during this season to do that as well. Salvation Army has reached out to the city of Vicksburg, and they say they got far more kids 
that need toys than they do people to adopt those kids this year. And so we would like to adopt five of those hundreds of kids that are in need of being adopted this year and provide them with Christmas clothes and Christmas toys. Our deadline, we found out this week that they had the need and the deadline is December the 12th, so we have a very short window in order to provide, but we want to encourage you that if you would like to provide for them, please drop an offering on our website and just say that, hey, I want this to go towards the Salvation Army Angel Tree. If we have more money to adopt more kids, then we'll do that because there are plenty that, that, that are in need of adopting this year. Let us, let us use this as an opportunity to, to prepare our hearts for the arrival of the Savior because that's what this season is intended to do. Amen? Let's pray.